Welcome to the world as seen by the chaos monkeys in the Kremlin. Anything happens in Britain which is chaotic, the Russian press covers it and plays it up, right? Any problem, they cover it and play it up. Or if there's something in, in, that's happening in Britain, like Brexit, which is going to cause chaos, they support it. The country has just taken part in a giant democratic exercise, perhaps the biggest in our history. They supported Brexit with, um, probably with money, I don't know, but they supported Brexit with, certainly with our, at our, with our tea, with their television resources, they supported it on the internet, um, and their diplomats supported it. And, you know, Mr. Putin talked about it. Mr. Putin talked about how wonderful it would be for you guys after Brexit, which is generally a sign that you should, like, think twice about something. Like, if Mr. Putin says, you should really go out with this woman, you know, you should probably, like, give it another thought before you make plans for that Saturday night. Biggest in our history. The British people have voted to leave the European Union and their will must be respected. Then the Russian zero-sum view of security, anything which weakens their adversaries, including the United Kingdom, by comparison makes Russia stronger. So if they target social cohesion, if they target resilience, if they set communities against each other, if they weaken political decision-making, with any of these things, they are achieving their objectives, even if they don't necessarily have a particular geopolitical or strategic outcome that they want to achieve. The voices of Timothy Snyder, Keir Giles, and of course, former British Prime Minister David Cameron, following Britain's 2016 referendum decision to leave the EU. So far in The Big Steel, we've focused on the men, and they're all men, who have plundered Russia's resources for their own benefit. But a bigger game is being played, and while we're not really playing it, we are the prize. As everyone knows, Britain's Brexit battle was hard fought, with bitterness and accusations of lies on both sides. The result was extremely close. 17.4 million voted to leave the EU, 16.1 million to remain. Almost four years on, Britain remains split, still unable to agree exactly what Brexit should mean, bored by debates, discussions and arguments over what former Prime Minister Theresa May kept telling us was the will of the people, when the people were, and clearly still are, divided. But the fingerprints of Russian meddling where many cyber experts, academic researchers, investigative journalists and others agree, all over the referendum. Sometimes there were direct accusations levelled at me, normally about my sexuality or my political past or whatever. You know, when you track them down on, on Twitter or on Facebook, they were quite clearly from people that didn't really exist. In one instance, the photo that was used was of a Russian skater, woman skater, who died 25 years ago. These were clearly fake accounts. Then there was a second thing, which was when somebody else had a, had a go at me, maybe my political opponent here in the UK, perfectly legitimate, but then that will be augmented by a whole series of bots tweeting, retweeting, and therefore making it look as if lots of people agreed with this and sympathised and keeping that noise going. Quite often you'd look on Twitter and you'd see, oh, two followers. There might be a face, but not a real name. And again, you know, I've had organisations being able to track all of these straight back to St. Petersburg. The reason... It's seen as being in Russia's interest to create chaos, encourage divisions in the West, in the European Union, NATO and elsewhere, to make Britain and our allies weaker so Russia emerges relatively stronger. And it's working. We know that there were substantial resources put into influencing the outcome 
of the uh, the Brexit referendum, and one has to assume that every Western European election or referendum is the subject to similar operations. In this edition of The Big Steel, we'll examine Russia's international meddling. And by doing so, we'll try to anticipate what happens next for Russians and the rest of us. Since we recorded these interviews, Vladimir Putin has revised the Russian constitution. This allows him to stay in power until 2036. But the big questions remain the same. What comes after him? And how should the West respond? I'm Gavin Esler, and in The Big Steel, we're telling the extraordinary story of how in one generation Russia went from communism to kleptocracy. This is the story of the biggest theft in history, the big steal of the resources of the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government, a government that runs the country for its own personal gain, acting more like a clique of bandits. At its heart, how the Russian government stole the country's biggest oil company, Yukos, from its shareholders and put the man who stood at its helm in jail for 10 years. Mikhail Kordakovsky was sentenced to nine years in prison for fraud and tax evasion. It's a conviction that raised eyebrows throughout much of the West because Kordakovsky had been a longtime political rival of President Putin. In today's Big Steal... Vladimir Putin has stolen huge fortunes from his nation and people. But how far is he now stealing democracy itself in Britain and elsewhere? Putin has been in power in Russia for two decades. In those 20 years, he shaped his leadership with the trappings of democracy, elections, a parliament, and yet with the reality more closely resembling a dictatorship or autocracy. Today, Russia is governed by a Kremlin power and business elite and ordinary Russians cross them at their peril. Across this series, we've told the story of Yukos, an underperforming oil company that rose from the ashes of communism during Boris Yeltsin's era of 1990s privatization. The company was transformed by Mikhail Khodorkovsky and his partners, ready to compete in the global oil business, only to be seized by President Putin and his cronies. Khodorkovsky and his colleagues were thrown in jail on trumped-up charges. But Yukos is simply one example of how the Kremlin regime operates. Today, we ask if after 20 years, Putin's grip on power could be reaching its end. And if so, what could be the next chapter of Russia's difficult history? Will it be yet another rerun of the observation by the early 20th century Russian reformer Pyotr Stolypin? In Russia, every 10 years, everything changes. And nothing changes in 200 years. So let's begin with considering what Vladimir Putin wants, not for himself, but for his country. If Putin were suddenly to disappear, what would be left? Professor Timothy Snyder is an American author and historian. He studied Russia for many years and concludes that while Putin has changed Russia, power has changed Putin. There's not a single Putin here. I think there's the Putin who was the surprising choice to succeed Boris Yeltsin. And I think that Putin simply wanted to stabilize himself, do the job that he'd been assigned, which was to let the Yeltsin family go out scot-free and become a real person, become respected. I think the problem for the second Putin, the one we have now, is that the first Putin succeeded. Um, 
He started the war in order to become a major figure. He basically won the war, unlike Yeltsin. I mean, the war in Chechnya, the Second Chechen War. And he became a major public figure. And, and I think that's his problem because Putin too is way more corrupt than Yeltsin won. Putin too is probably the wealthiest person in the history of the world. Putin too's only possible mission could be to reform a Russian state of which he is in fact the major problem, right? So he's in this impossible position, which means that Putin too, the one we have now, has to define his goals for the public in a way which is basically metaphysical because he can't change the physical world. If you sit at the top of a hydrocarbon oligarchy, which is where he is, you can't change that. All you can do is say, well, look out at the rest of the world. They're the bad guys, we're the good guys. But that means that there's gonna be no final moment where the West, that, that the West admits that they're all gay and they stop. You know, There's gonna be no curtain resolution like that. There just has to be this continuous back and forth, us and them, we're good, they're evil, indefinitely until he dies in his bed, which, you know, that may be the answer, actually. Does the West then have a Putin problem, but also has a Russian problem? Because some of these things play into, obviously, hundreds of years of Russian history, mm -hmm. feeling betrayed, feeling encircled, all that kind of stuff, which he uses. But even if he weren't there, that would still exist, wouldn't it? That, that, that psychology. Our problem is us, right? The West has a Western problem. Russia would be much less important in, at many different levels if we had our own act together. The only way that Mr. Putin has any kind of profile in the West is as an indirect result of our own problems. And what Mr. Putin does is he points to things that really are problems, exaggerates them, then says the world is just like that, and therefore it's no problem that Russia is just like that. So you're a little bit corrupt, we're a lot corrupt, but basically everything is 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 corrupt. So I. I don't want to turn your question around completely, but I think it's it's important for us to realize that if it weren't for things that we did, Mr. Putin wouldn't exist in our own minds. He also probably wouldn't exist in reality because the whole Russian system depends on the lack of Western transparency in basic matters like um, bank transfers, real estate purchases, um, anonymous companies, and so on. Without our problems, that Russian system couldn't exist. Tim Snyder is making a profoundly important point, but one that Western leaders appear unable to grasp. We cannot change Russia, but we need to change our behavior towards Russia and especially towards the problems Russia helps create. And Putin also has his own problems. Ask any patriotic Russian about this vast nation full of enormous natural and human resources, about economic underperformance, terrible roads, crumbling buildings, unpredictable medical care and corruption. Russia sprawls across 11 time zones, but its GDP ranks below much smaller nations like Italy and South Korea. Putin and his cronies have their palaces, yachts and billions – but most of Russia's almost 150 million people are, by European or American standards, poor. Some 21 million of them are below Russia's own definition of poverty, and those figures have been getting worse. For simple things, getting a child into a good school, a minor matter with a local official, a run-in with police, bribes are considered a fact of life, a normal expense. But there are signs that ordinary Russians who had first welcomed President Putin as a rock of stability after the chaos when the Soviet Union collapsed are becoming increasingly uneasy and assertive. 
The next presidential election is not until 2024, but already the Putin government is showing signs of nervousness. Cracking down on protest groups and opposition movements is a sign of Putin's weakness, not of strength. We'll hear from two Russians now, both with a strong interest in politics and Russian patriotism. First, Garry Kasparov, the Russian chess grandmaster who became a household name in his own country and in the West. Nowadays, he's a writer and political activist living in exile in New York. Like Tim Snyder, he sees big changes under Putin, changes for the worse. Russia under Putin of the first two terms was authoritarian state that was moving in the direction of of dictatorship. Now it's 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 the worst and the most unstable form of governance. It's a one-man dictatorship that openly embraces uh, many elements of fascist ideology and has no hesitations in violating international treaties. So just attacking and uh, neighboring countries, annexing territories, using um, illegal um, methods of war, like you know, carpet bombing and through proxies, Putin's proxies like Assad, uh, using chemical weapons as anything that helps Putin to stay in power now uh, can be used. And since it's a one-man dictatorship, it doesn't have a deliberation process, which is typical for Politburo or mafia structures, when you still have families or different party factions that are trying to reconcile their interests, which offers systems some sort of stability because it's the, they, they have to look for preservation of the system. Now it's about one man, about his image. He must look invincible. He must look strong because... While economy in Russia is no longer Putin's ally, it's, it's getting worse and worse. He needs foreign policy successes, even virtual successes, to demonstrate that um, he is too powerful to be challenged. To understand the nature of Putin's regime, you should, you should read uh, Mario Putin's Godfather. Uh, because the way Putin's political system is, is operating, uh, it's very similar to the mafia structure. It's all about loyalty. So loyalty in exchange, of, in exchange for promotion. Um, and that's why uh, Putin is so frustrated with uh, things like Magnitsky law. Because uh, from his perspectives, to stay in power and uh, to guarantee the loyalty of his, uh, of his gang uh, from top to bottom, he must, must offer protection to every hitman. That's the way it works. The moment the boss doesn't offer protection to everyone, his authority is challenged because the, it's, it's, it's not a democratic institution. It's not about elections. It's, it's about the strong man just keeping his gang under control. And, uh, and Putin built a mafia state. So I, I always say that every country has its own mafia. In Russia, mafia has its own state. Vladimir Karamurza is an opposition politician. He's keen to remind us that despite Garry Kasparov's assertion that Russia is run by criminals, the 150 million or so ordinary Russians are just like the rest of us, trying to do the best honestly for themselves and their families. He draws a clear distinction between the Russian people and the regime. It's a small, relatively small group of people around Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin. The crooks and the criminals and the kleptocrats who make up the current authoritarian regime who behave in this way. It's not Russia. I mean, these people who are in the Kremlin today, they want everybody to equate them with Russia. You know, Vyacheslav Volodin, who is the current speaker of the Russian parliament, who was uh, for a long time Vladimir Putin's chief domestic policy enforcer in the Kremlin, said publicly on the record a few years ago, quote, there's no Russia without Putin, end of quote. 
I've never heard anything more insulting said about my country than that. And unfortunately, too many people, including people of goodwill in the West, in the democratic countries, you know, take this as face value and also equate, you know, our whole country, the whole Russian nation with a small group of kleptocrats and, and crooks and criminals who are sitting in the Kremlin. Please don't do that. Russia is so much bigger, so much more diverse, and, and, and if I may say so, so much better than the people who are currently in power. Uh, and, you know, apart from being insulting, this equating is also not true because there are so many people in our country who, despite the repression, despite the dangers, despite the risks, despite the fact that the current regime is indeed becoming increasingly a police state, are willing and ready to come out and publicly protest against the injustice, against the corruption, against the authoritarianism. And beginning in 2017, and most prominently this past summer, in the summer of 2019, we have seen thousands, tens of thousands of people, including many young Russians who have been coming out to the streets all across the country uh, to say no to the corruption and the uh, election fraud and the authoritarianism and the kleptocracy and, and to demand change. The opposition is focusing on 2024 because that year is when Putin's current presidential term is due to end. In the past, he's found a way to cling on again by switching from president to prime minister and then back again. Could he repeat the trick? And if he doesn't, who might succeed him? Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Anne Applebaum. One of the oddities of Russian politics right now is that it's not just that we don't know who will come after Putin. We actually don't know how that person will be chosen and who will choose him. Um, so what we have is a, a complete blank. We don't know what the succession process is. We don't know how, how it will happen or how it will come about. Um, you know, we can make guesses. We can name names. Um, but really, we're in a kind of almost, um, you know, 15th, 16th century Russian situation where, you know, the king is in charge, the succession is, is unknown. And at any moment, there could be, um, you know, there could be violence, there could be um, a real break. And we just, we are, we are not able to predict anything about it. So what can we in the West do except watch as spectators? Author and Russia expert Mark Galliotti is Honorary Professor at University College London's School of Slavonic and East European Studies. First of all, I think it's a major mistake to think that cracking down on kleptocrats is going to change Russian policy. Um, I can understand how people sort of want to present it as that, but it doesn't. The irony is the more we crack down on the kleptocrats in the West, the more we actually drive them back into Russia, and more to the point, we drive their money back into Russia. Look, the reason they want to move their money into the West is because it is not safe in Russia. Putin can get at it there. Putin has been trying to encourage them to bring their money back. We are actually now helping him. I still think we should do it because it's just it helps cleanse our own system. But we shouldn't pretend that it's going to influence Kremlin policy. The options for the West directly to influence Russia's future are now and always have been slim. But I put it to Mark Galliotti that even Putin must have some sense that he's not immortal. He needs to think of his legacy and place in Russian history, which at the moment is that of the world's most successful kleptocrat. I cannot see any substantive positive change taking place while Putin is still in the Kremlin. I think this is a man who has exhausted his capacities to reinvent himself, that believes himself um, in a position in which he has no real alternative but to continue on the path he's on. 
otherwise he'll be remembered as the Tsar that failed. And that's not how he wants to go down in history. So I think in, what we have to do is two things. One is, yes, we need to minimize the damage that Russia can do to us by shoring up the areas in which they, they exploit everything from precisely the flows of dirty money to the disinformation and such like. Um, and also where we can deterring. I mean, the Russians are not willing to take ridiculous risks. They're actually quite cautious in their adventurism. So that's what we need to do on the one hand. But at the same time, we need to bear in mind that the Putin regime is already in its twilight. And this is the thing, even in Moscow, talk, I mean, everyone is already thinking of post-Putinism. And what we also need to be doing is preparing ourselves for that, not trying to identify the next leader and support them or anything like that. But we must not fall prey to encouraging Putin's own legitimating narrative. And what Putin tells Russians is, the world hates you. And that's why we need to be a fortress. Well, we need to make it clear that we don't. We have a problem with Putin, we have a problem with the Kremlin, we have a problem with the current policies, but we don't have a problem with ordinary Russians. So I think while we're on the one hand trying to contain them in geopolitical terms, we also need to be reaching out to the next generation of Russians and making sure that we don't end up with just yet another Putin. Well, all that's fine for the long term. But as the British economist John Maynard Keynes once quipped in the long term, we're all dead. And in the immediate future, Putin looks immovable. Businessman and Magnitsky Act campaigner Bill Browder believes democratic nations such as Germany, the UK and even the United Nations need to wake up and stand up to Russian aggression. Putin has got a pair of twos, we've got a full house, um, and he's bluffing us in every, in, in, at, every, at every different point. Putin has an economy the size of the state of New York. He has a military budget, which is 90% less than the United States. His only way of, of fighting is on an asymmetric, plausibly deniable um, uh, way. And his weakness is um, ultimately very easy to expose, and it's just a purely a question of of the West sort of calling him out. The king's not wearing any clothes. And at the moment, we treat him like like this superpower, this head of a superpower. The only thing he has is, is he, he has the ultimate sort of um, nuclear button. But up until that, uh, he's got nothing. And, and, and we, uh, if you speak to anybody in the military world, they understand it completely, that all you have to do is put up a firm barrier and he won't cross it. And we actually knew how to deal with, with the Soviets in the Cold War, we just had a containment policy. And we should have a firm containment policy with Putin because he doesn't have the strength in any way to do anything um, if we decide to contain him. But we don't. Germany is increasing their reliance on, on Russian gas. The United Kingdom refuses to, pop, to prosecute anybody involved in Russian money laundering. And we continue to kowtow to him at the United Nations and all these other international institutions. Um, Eventually, that's going to stop, but the sooner it stops, the better it will be. Bill Browder may be correct, but it's difficult to see how Western nations can significantly influence the direction of Russian politics. It's up to the Russian people themselves. Here's Mark Galliotti again. Putin is obviously going to try and sort of pick a successor who is going to protect him, him and his legacy and his system. But the interesting thing is, in my opinion, the majority of the Russian elite did not sign up for a crusade against the West. And I think there's a lot of people who are waiting for Putin to go precisely so that there can be some kind of improvement to relations with the West. My suspicion is that, not necessarily immediately, but with a Putin successor, will almost certainly be looking to improve relations with the West, will back away from many of these more aggressive policies, 
and we will be delighted with that and we will not care how corrupt these people are so long as they're not a problem for us. In our conversation you, you suggested that the successor could be even worse. It's certainly possible and that, that's one of the arguments that are sometimes sort of raised nowadays why people should want to keep Putin in place. Um, that this notion that we, we could get chaos, we could get the rise of some kind of ultra-nationalist, we could get sort of warlords slugging it out in the streets of Moscow. Now, I am obscurely and unfashionably optimistic about Russia. Firstly, in the sense of, I think, actually, the elite will share a common interest in there being a relatively smooth transfer of power. I think we're going to see you know, a lot of behind-the-scenes dis discussions about precisely how to manage the process of a post-Putin succession in a way that'll keep the lunatics out of power. But more broadly speaking, look, there is a clear understanding that the current status quo is untenable unless you are one of the handful of people who are closest to Putin personally. So I think the interesting thing is actually that we will see a shift to the rest, to the majority of, of the elite, who are essentially um, you know, pragmatic, who are essentially interested just you know, in, in, in wealth and stability. And that does not lend itself to the kind of nightmare scenarios that we've seen. But in the short term, that, that, that's how it'll shake down. In the short term, who knows, we might see someone who looks scary. I mean, there are figures even within the current political system who are scarier than Putin. Worse than Putin? Now there's a thought. Aaron Jan Bukerstein is a Dutch broadcaster and former politician. He asks a different question. He says, why don't we play Putin at his own game? Since Putin's been so effective at influencing elections and meddling in our democracies, why shouldn't we hit back in the same way? Russia is at war with us, and because they are constantly trying to undermine our democracy, we could do something which is very dangerous. Why don't we prop up democratic forces inside Russia? In the past, I was against it because it could produce war and I was a realist. Eh? But now I begin to believe I values are important. Eh? And it also, it is the weakest spot of Russia. He is so afraid that the Russian citizen will say, we want to have democracy and transparency and we hate corruption. Eh? So why don't we support the rule of law things in Russia? Because it, it is the place where you can hit him the hardest. You hit him even harder than with sanctions. Eh? Why don't we give money secrets to people in Russia? Why don't we do it? Why don't we have trolls ourselves? <laughs> Why not? If you know something about cyber war, mm. eh? uh, I've been talking to these generals. We were in the past defensive, but you have to do also offensive things. So you talk about corruptions of oligarchs and of Putin of his private money. Why not? We live in a very bad world, but do it in a smart way. It's an interesting suggestion, even though it could backfire unless done covertly, as in the Cold War. Vladimir Karamurza is more optimistic. He hopes Russia is ready to change from the inside. This year marks 20 years since Vladimir Putin came to power in December of 1999, and we have now had an entire generation of people in Russia who have grown up uh, not having any other political memories and not knowing any other political realities except him and his regime. You know, a whole generation that's never never seen free and fair elections in Russia, that, that, that hasn't seen independent television in Russia, that that is used to this system of 
you know, corrupt, kleptocratic, personalistic, authoritarian power. Uh, and yet, despite the fact that, you know, we've now had a whole generation grow up under this regime, there are more and more young people in our country who are willing to stand up against the injustice and the corruption and the authoritarianism and the abuse of power. And uh, I have to tell you, it's really hopeful to see uh, that new generation, that young generation of people who want, you know, a very different Russia and who have a very different vision for Russia uh, from, from, from the people who are currently in the Kremlin. It's not about power or money anymore even, it's about personal safety because he knows what he has done in those two decades. He knows everything that he's responsible for. And so, of course, he's afraid to... Uh, to leave. But you know, so so was every dictator before him. And uh, if it were just up to dictators themselves to stay in power, then every dictator in the history of the world would stay in power forever. And we know that that certainly is not what happened. And you know, when people talk about you know, how strong and entrenched and and, 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 and popular, that's that's another that's another actually pretty hilarious phrase that uh, the Western pundits sometimes use to describe the Putin regime. I only have one question of that. If, if Putin really was as popular as he says, why does he feel the need to rig elections all the time? Why is he so afraid to allow opponents on the ballot? Why is he so afraid of having, you know, free debates on television? Uh, you know, why, why is he so afraid of his own people that he feels the need to send fully armed, you know, riot police and National Guard to beat up and arrest peaceful demonstrators. This is not the behavior of somebody who is popular and strong. This is the behavior of a regime that is weak and insecure. And frankly, looking at the protests that have been happening in our country uh, over the couple of years, but most dramatically over this past summer, I think we can see why he feels so weak and so insecure. To repeat the point, as even Roman emperors were told, remember, you are mortal. Putin will not last forever. But Putinism, autocracy in Russia sowing confusion in vulnerable democracies elsewhere, may outlast him. Some Russia watchers have told us they expect Russia has already begun planning how to influence this year's US presidential election. But we wanted to end this series as we began with Mikhail Khodorkovsky, in some ways a very modern Russian. The entrepreneur who ended up turning Yukos from a Soviet-era dinosaur into a modern oil company and then losing it all when he fell foul of Putin. But in another way, Mikhail Khodorkovsky is a very traditional Russian type, an exile in London, a patriot who misses his homeland like a lost love. So I asked him if he could ever see a time when he'd be able to return home. Naturally, I think that one day, I'll have the opportunity to go back to Russia. I refuse to believe that this regime is going to be in place the entire life of mine. I have no interest in recovering the property I used to have. But if my country needs me to go back to the normal trajectory of its development, I would be happy to assist you. <sighs> I think the most precious thing I have now is time. And I, I'm even happy to give some of my time in order to bring this about. But this is a sense of duty. What then do you think of Putin now? There are some who say we should be careful not to make him into a great figure. He's playing a, a difficult hand quite well, but it's still a very difficult hand. We shouldn't build him up too much. Do you, how, do, how do you view him? 
когда ты перешел на нормальную сторону. Вот Путин, попав к Собчаку... I have my own idea, which is quite entrenched now about Putin. I think it's a man with the mental makeup of the person he was and the position he occupied at the beginning of the 1990s. Remember, I talked about the tracks, the wrong side and the right side, and when you take a decision where you want to belong. Это то, чем обычно занимаются криминальные авторитеты. И дальше он стал управлять этим, как управляется криминальным сообществом. Between the criminals and criminalized police, and also between the criminals themselves inside the criminal world. This is what people in charge of the criminal world usually do. So when he became president of Russia, as I've already told you, he decided to make corruption the backbone of administration and to make the environment around him made up of criminals, turn everybody into a criminal, and to rule that environment as they do in the criminal underworld. That's really the essence of Putin. And yet he is no monster. A lot of uh, mafia bosses or heads of criminal gangs in Russia are not monsters. They're not sadistic. They don't get any pleasure of poking people's eyes out or cutting their fingers off. In fact, moreover, he, if he can give uh, a beggar his penny or have a bowl of soup for a homeless person, he would do that. And that's exactly the way they behave in the criminal underworld. A lot of them do so, the mafia bosses. And yet it doesn't stop him from uh, instructing his government to deprive pensioners of their pension or somebody's of their wages. Understanding that this money is not going to be put to good use for the sake of the country, but this money is going to uh, line the pockets of his friends. So these two things coexist in his mind. And this is what I'm trying and sometimes fail to explain to Western governments. I'm saying you cannot find a common language with Putin, not because you are good and he's bad. You start from a different starting point. You have a different system of values, a different mental makeup. So, for instance, for you, a good contract is a win-win situation. A good deal is when I win a lot and he wins a little less. Presumably, Vladimir Putin cannot be in power forever, but he's been in power since 1999. He's been there for 20 years. He could go on for a very long time. Do you see any end to it? То есть он неоднократно сказал. И, как мне кажется, в это можно верить, что Путин создал систему, So people have to feel that they would gain an awful lot in order to violently remove him from power. And Putin does everything he can not to make that gain sufficient for them to want it. And of course it goes for Moscow mostly because everything to do with power is decided in Moscow. This is why Moscow is fed and looked after well. But it doesn't mean that he is absolutely safe. 
This only means that it's difficult to predict the exact time when this regime is going to fall. Vladimir Putin's influence obviously extends well beyond the Russian borders. But a Dutch court has just ruled in favour of the former shareholders of Yukos, reinstating the original award of $50 billion and agreeing that Yukos was stolen and absorbed into Rosneft, the state-run oil company. But will the Russian government ever foot the bill? Next time, we'll be looking to the future. Can the Putin regime be truly held to account? And in an election year for the USA, what safeguards can be put in place to prevent his interference influencing the outcome? The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced by Martin Points Roberts at Fresh Air Production. Please make sure you subscribe to the series so you don't miss an episode.